Hi, I'm Erin Baker. And I'm Whitney Hunt. Welcome to Feminist Intersections. This week, we sat down with our friend and colleague, Salam Abu Hassan, to talk about her research on Muslim experiences in the workplace. Salam is currently a PhD candidate at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. The title of her dissertation is Answering for Their Visibility, Gendered and Racialized Muslim Experiences at Work. Hello, Salam. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, tell us about your your work. How did you pick your your topic? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I, I had just prior to starting graduate school, I had been working at a financial aid um, office at a post-secondary edu- institute um, where many of the students as well as employees were Arab and Muslim. And I had this like really interesting relationship with my direct supervisor that I would describe as, I don't know, tense maybe. Um, she had once corrected my use of the, the word God. You know, it was some, some kind of generic statement. Like, I swear to God, I, I don't know how this happened regarding some like work item. And she, her response was, no, it's not God, it's Allah for you. These are two separate things. That was her comment. And this was around the time I had expressed interest in um, developing myself for a promotion. I was, had just entered graduate school um, and I still had a lot of time. I was working on my master's. I was still in classes. So I was still working full time. I ended up filing a complaint um, and I was told by the director that I was being a bit too sensitive. I was seen as angry, which was a very, now in my research, I, I understand that Arab and Muslim women have been perceived, as, can be perceived as angry. Um, two months later, I would be denied that same promotion, even though they had on, had me on a development plan to be promoted. And this is what kind of would serve as a catalyst. A few years later, um, after I completed my master's and I was thinking about entering, I was entering the PhD program, um, the Supreme Court had ruled on the case of Samantha Eloff, who wore the hijab and was denied employment at Abercrombie & Fitch because um, she wore the hijab and it, it was not in line with their dress code policy. This would kind of help develop the idea of this proposal um, I wasn't sure where I was going because I know I wanted to focus on Muslim women that wore the hijab. But what ended up happening is that a a few years later in my community, there was a woman named Jalila Ahmed who was running for superintendent of Hamtramck Public Schools. This is a um, a large immigrant community that's made up of Bengali and Yemeni students. Um, And her competition was actually uh, a gentleman named Yusuf Masalam, who was also Arab and Muslim. They both were, except she was Yemeni and he was Lebanese. And the difference is Yemenis um, tend to be darker and she wore the hijab and he and Lebanese people, not all of them, but they can pass. They can be white adjacent or white assuming. Um, so what ended up happening is that there was a lot of pushback against her appointment as superintendent. She was the one that would face community backlash that, that depicted her as unqualified. Um, she eventually got appointed, but this the whole thing was very contentious and divisive. Similarly, Mr. Mosalam would get a superintendent position, but he would be placed in a school that catered to a large um, Arab and white student population, where the Arab population tended to be more Lebanese and again, white passing. So this was very compelling for me. I, I started to think about not just about Muslim women who wore the scarf, but what it means to be Muslim and Arab, but to be white assuming or white passing compared to those Arabs and Muslims who have darker skin, who have specific identity markers that present as you know, other. Um, and that's kind of where my dissertation kind of took off. I wrote the proposal with these ideas and uh, 
yeah, and here we are now, 84 interviews later. <laughs> and in the, in, the, in, the, in the interviews, I specifically looked, I'm, I'm comparing three specific subgroups. So it would be, that's Muslim men, Muslim women who veil, and Muslim women who do not. And kind of comparing their differences um, and exploring differences at work, professional workplace environments. The space, the space is interesting that you, the, the workspace in general, it seems that you were corrected in your, in your work. I was. Or in that financial institution, right? Yeah, I, I was. I mean, in that particular case, it was just, it was more just, there was nothing about, I mean, what I, I was clearly identified, right? So my research definitely explores how is somebody identified. If one was to look at me, I do look Arab, I think, um, but I think it's my name, Salam. Sure. You know, but are you finding in those interviews that they're have sharing some of those same experiences that you uh, live? You oh, have? yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just those experiences, you know, the, the, this, that's this type of hostile treatment that people are experiencing is definitely in line with whether or not they are identified. So, I mean, in one of my, in my first chapter, which kind of explores the um, spectrum of racialized visibility, I start with those that are white assuming or white adjacent. And then I move to like those that are more ambiguous. They seem other, but they're not necessarily screaming Muslim. And then I kind of explore um, gendered signifiers like name, the hijab, um, dark skin, beards for men before moving on to cultural or, um, you know, accents or religious expression, cultural expressions that identify a person. So when those, when one has multiple identifiers, they're more likely to experience those similar um, comments and they become more harsh, obviously, depending on what the signifier is. Muslim women who veil definitely experience a, um, a slew of inappropriate, offensive, I can't even describe, <laughs> Um, the commentary, backlash, questioning, unfair questioning that is unlike other groups. Most certainly I can give you examples. Yeah, but... I would, we would love to hear a few examples. Oh man. Um, one, you know, one that really stands out that is work related that, because, you know, the experience I had was just a comment, right? It wasn't anything related to my work. I did have one woman who was who wore the hijab, who veiled, and she was a um, she was getting a PhD um, in nursing, but she was currently working as a midwife in a large hospital here in uh, Metro Detroit. And I'm not sure if you're aware of how like OBGYN offices work, but for the most part, you go into a hospital, and if your primary doctor isn't available, you're pretty much dealing with the on-call midwife. So she had, there's a patient that walked in, had never met her. I call her Asia in my research is her pseudonym. And she had never, she had just seen Asia's picture in the, um, the practices, you know, the, the midwives that are, were part of the practice. And she basically told the receptionist that she was fine with dealing with any of the midwives, but if, if, when it came down to it, if she was in labor and her primary midwife was unavailable, she did not want to work with Asia. And yeah, she basically just implied that Asia lacked compassion, was more or less um, violent or just heartless. And the more most interesting thing about this experience 
is that the practice, the doctors told the specific patient that that's just not going to happen. We can't, you know, ensure that you don't work with one of our midwives because you have a problem with her hijab. And the, the woman tried to justify it. And there was another midwife that worked at the hospital who was Arab and Muslim, but didn't wear, wear a hijab. And she said that I would be more than happy to work with her. It's just Asya I have a problem with. And both of these women identified as Palestinian. They were both Muslim, um, but it was pretty much the hijab that um, caused this reaction. Um, so that would that would be an example of not just an inappropriate comment, but just a reflection of how Muslims stand to lose business in various forms, right? In this case, losing a patient because of their religious identity. So there are definitely work consequences, um, and not just facing heightened visibility and inappropriate comments. In her research, Salam found that gender impacted the experience for Muslims at work differently. With respect to like the signifiers, um, whereas men were typically had, had to deal with their names and their beards, for women it tended to be, first of all, in terms of the signifiers, it was the hijab and like curly dark hair. Right. So women would say like it would be a difference of like straightening my hair and curling my hair that would that would cause somebody to think that I was a little different. Right. If they wore hoop earrings, it would determine it would it would it would create an assumption that they were Puerto Rican versus Arab. Um, But outside of that, when if a woman was identified, um, the assumptions about them varied from men. So men, when they were identified, they are primarily dealing with one uh, caricature, the angry, violent intimidating Arab man, right? That's abusive towards women. For women, when they were outed, depending on their, the signifiers or how they identify, whether it, be, it was their name or whether it was their hijab or just their look, right? If they were dark enough to pass, um, if they had a darker skin, um, they faced a, a, a couple different and somewhat sometimes contradictory um, caricatures. One being uneducated and passive, um, one being the angry Arab bitch, I think I call it. And I get that from like, like I, I remember reading about like the caricature that black women face, right? The educated black bitch. Um, but in this case, they were passive and uneducated. They were passive and oppressed. So they, they would receive a lot of questions about like, why are they allowed to work? Are they allowed? They were highly fetishized and sexualized. Like, can I date? Am I allowed to date you? So it wasn't like somebody just hitting on them. It was more like, Am I, I want to date you because you're untouchable. Outside of that, another way gender came into play was, like I said, depending on where they worked, women faced extreme sexism and sexual harassment when they were working within their immigrant communities. So women were more likely to be tracked into specific segments of work. They were more likely to choo- choose education. And even when they chose education, they would, or healthcare, they would be tracked into hospitals that cater to Arab and Muslim communities or schools that cater to immigrant populations. Whereas men were, were more able to go outside into the suburbs and work for school districts that were largely white or a more diverse population. Similarly, in industries such as real estate, they faced forms of sexism that from other Arab and Muslim men, right, that saw them as unqualified, uneducated, unable to close a deal, right? And these women had to like really overcome glass ceilings or uh, just forms of sexism that prevented them from closing deals because people didn't think that they were capable 
of managing a real estate sale or closing a mortgage. So the um, women were steered to into to to remain in the community, whereas men are more often able to or seen mm-hmm. as capable uh, to. Yeah. And it's interesting because it wasn't like when I asked these women, like what pushed you to go into, you know, Dearborn public schools or whatever school district had like a large, whatever school district they worked in, they had a large population. It wasn't like anybody was necessarily pushing them. It was, it was just that they were aware that they were just, especially if they wore a hijab and that's where the intersection of racialized religious, religious visibility comes in. Muslim women who veiled were not only more likely to go into immigrant schools, but were more likely to start their careers in Islamic charter schools. And they, I mean, unfortunately, they they pay less. You know, they they were very they were very upset by this. It wasn't like a, a happy decision that they were making. It was just they were they felt compelled, or they're like, who else was going to hire me? And they'd have to work through the charter system to get into a public institution. And even when they got into the public institution, again, it was a district that was embedded in an immigrant community. And then women that were in these education system, there were significant differences in how they were placed, right? A a school district that has large number of immigrant populations. I mean, they have multiple schools. Dearborn is a really great example of that. Um, Dearborn is historically known to be very polarized, racially polarized, West End, East End, immigrant, you know, larger white population becoming more dispersed now the air population but still the west end schools typically have more diverse population and women that were able to go into the west end schools were more ambiguous didn't veil you know um spoke about how schools strategically place them because they can appeal to both without causing any fear or distrust and it's interesting because it causes i don't know the term is at the t- tip of my tongue but these women will talk about how Arab parents preferred them because they were more ambiguous, because they assume white teachers would better educate their children. And these were immigrant parents that, you know, tended to be uneducated or didn't speak the language. Um, and those that would get promoted would only be promoted within school districts, within schools that were located at the East End. So it sounds like all of that would cause these women to to ultimately have potentially higher levels of poverty um if they're getting paid paid less right mm -hmm. and they have fewer opportunities they're going to be stuck Mm -hmm. right yeah i mean when i spoke to men that worked in education and i asked them what took them outside you know to these other districts and they were like it was money right like these other districts were wealthier and they paid more um this is also the case in healthcare, right there is um Women talked about how they were not pushed, but they just, they, when they would be placed in like certain hospitals that were embedded within immigrant communities, the the pay isn't as much of an issue, but um, it was just experiencing some forms of sexism. In healthcare, it was more overt. It was more like Arab and Muslim men would say things like, you shouldn't, this isn't the field for you. You need, how are you, you need to go home and take care of your husband. It was so like, you know, being a doctor, being a surgeon is not going to work out for you. You're not going to have, you're going to be too tired to go home and cook, right? These kind of gendered assumptions that these women faced by other Arab and Muslim men was horrifying and quite sad, to be honest. 
In many cases, these Muslim employees took action to mitigate discrimination and prevent negative interactions. In that, in this particular case, it was around veiling, right? Men would have similar experiences when they were identified, and that was primarily by their name. Men were more likely to engage in racial renaming because racially coded names, research has shown that when you have a racially coded name, you're less likely to be hired or um, racialized renaming has been shown to like create issues in identity development in K through 12 schools. But in this case, I'm pretty much looking at workplace experiences and among men, they take on the strategy to racially rename themselves. Mohammed becomes Mike, Hassan becomes Sam, right? Um, because when people identify them, again, they lose business. So I had one who worked in the financial in the securities industry, and he changed his business cards from, I assigned him the name Talal to Tom. And he made sense. And he was like, Tom statistically makes, is more, most likely to you know, be trusted the most or... Um, and I, I don't know where he got that staff from about the name Tom. But Interesting. Yeah. So do you find most of these people are anglicizing their names throughout the workforce and in your community even? Is that, nor- is that a typical practice? I think it's a reality, right? I think everybody enters the workplace and it's a reality. Like, should I change my name? Prior to entering graduate school, right, I, I worked in the mortgage industry for a little while and I was told to change my name from Salam to Sam. And I did. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, to sell I sell more mortgages because you were more likely to. I don't want to like out the company I worked for, but yeah, it was just I was dealing with like a broad <laughs> range of clients from across the state and at times across the US. So it was like if they heard Salam, they weren't going to work with you. And I did interview multiple people in the mortgage industry and they were very clear. So a lot of these things are very specific to the industry as well, right? Um, naming is primarily happening in. This financial services sector, mortgages, real estate, um, those that don't change their name are typically working in immigrant communities, so they don't really have to. Tom did, was very clear in saying, I have two sets of business cards. I use Tom when I'm working with clientele outside of my community, mm-hmm. and I use Talal when I have a client who's, uh, who's Arab or Muslim or who's around this community. Um, so there is a lot of what they call code switching happening. Absolutely. There, one, one particular participant called it boosters, right? He doesn't have many identifiers that physically show. So he he's pretty much white assuming. And I say white assuming because it allows us saying white passing assumes that somebody is experiencing whiteness. Um, but this isn't what they're experiencing. They are responding to the fact that they are adjacent to whiteness. Um, so he, he calls them boosters. He's like, I, I have this ability to subtly pull on my, these boosters. I will definitely talk about my, in his case, he was Lebanese, my Lebanese heritage, where my dad comes from, if the client is aware um, of the the culture and is, is showing me that they're not going to be ignorant towards it. However, even these preventative actions were impacted by gender. You know, one of the things I do know is that throughout history, in Islamic history and Arab history, Muslim, Muslim and Arab women's experiences have been erased. This is like a historical problem. So I, I believe that that is one of the main reasons why names of women are not as known, right? We don't, when we read on Islamic history or um, Arab history, we're often reading about Arab leaders who are men. Um, and these are, it's their names that are becoming really well known in the US and American 
psyche, right? Um, especially considering that most U.S. Americans, what they know about Muslims and Arabs is what, what they get off the news, the mainstream media. So I think that plays a significant role. We don't hear about Muslim women in history a lot. So when I spoke to, I've asked both, and there were, I'm not saying that Muslim women didn't, right? I changed my name at one point during my career, uh, my past career. But for the most part, a lot of the comments I received, and just off the top of my head, were comments like, my name doesn't scream Muslim. My name, like Silvana, passes as Armenian. Some people think it's Hawaiian. My name is French. My name is this. My name, you know, and I don't, I haven't had a chance to look in the history of Muslim women, women's names, but there are some very religious women, women's names, but most women are, have names that are just more fluid in terms of like their, where they come from. So when we talked about racialized renaming amongst men and women that I interviewed, when I asked them about like, do have you ever considered, they're like, no, my name passes or it's not, it doesn't scream. It's not like my name is Muhammad or Ali or Hassan. Like that's what I got a lot. My name isn't Hassan. My name isn't Abdullah. My name isn't Muhammad. Um, so men and women were both very clear in indicating men's names when talking about what names racially out somebody. Salam then explained that this identity management has dual purposes. Not only does it help some Muslim workers in business, but it also protects them from having to do the extra labor of answering unwanted and intrusive questions or deflecting negative comments from others. For many of these workers, it wasn't just the negative commentary. It was more um, managing their identity in such a way. Identity management and not disclosing their identity was more about not having to engage in the extra work involved. Emotion, like emotional work even? Uh, Yeah, I guess it would be, uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely emotion work involved in it. I mean, when you are white assuming or you have an ambiguous look, you are also attuned to the comments because people don't think you're Muslim. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what pushes them to identify themselves. So people feel like they can trust in another person enough to to share how they're feeling because they're not they they're they've assumed they're they're not identified as muslim or arab so people are just feel secure enough to speak in such a manner i mean a, a quick example is i had a nur- a, a surgical nurse who was in a sur- surgery with another surgeon and another nurse and her and the surgeon were talking and the surgeon became aware of her potential identity she doesn't have a name that screams muslim or arab and she's always misidentified as being Asian, and, but she's not. And um, the surgeon became aware of her identity because he, she let him know her high school. They, her, their alma maters, their high school alma maters were very close and they were competitors in football or some sport. So he kind of, she never directly said I'm Arab or Muslim, but out of nowhere, this other nurse just started talking about how she believed that Muslims should be put in concentration camps. Yeah, and not just Muslims, other foreigners. You know, and I don't remember what the exact quote was. And the surgeon and the nurse, the nurse I interviewed was very nervous. Um, so the surgeon like tried to diffuse the situation by asking her, and I, I name her her name in the dissertation as Amal. Um, he tells her, Amal, where are you from? I, uh, and she says, I'm Lebanese. Well, <laughs> most people don't <laughs> don't make that connection. I don't know. The, the nurse it didn't draw it didn't click to the nurse that Lebanon. Maybe she didn't know where Lebanon was, or um, and so she just kept talking. 
And so the surgeon had to be more direct, like, hey, Amal, are you Christian or Arab? And she was like, I mean, are you Christian or Muslim? And Amal was like, I'm Muslim. Now, so she had to like directly disclose her identity to stop this. Afterwards, be try she was, and the words are so clear in my head. She went up to Amon and was like, oh, honey, let, let me explain myself. Like, were you, were, did you care when the Twin Towers fell? Yeah. And it was, <laughs> and it was just, oh, Amal, and Amal was like, I just became scared. Like at that point, like, why? Do, yeah. Like that, that's the kind of emotion work. Like you have to now talk about like your feelings about 9-11 because now you have you to know. explain yourself right now, now you have to explain yeah yourself and, yeah and yeah. and Amal was like <laughs> yeah I cared and she's like I just felt like I had to suddenly defend myself and these workers are not trying these are professional workers I specifically interviewed people who were in semi-professional or professional settings they are actively trying to promote or seeking advancement and their focus is their work so this is additional work that they do not want to put up with um, right. So a lot of them that are ambiguous in their looks or white assuming aren't disclosing their identity because they're aware of what they would have to face should they their identities be disclosed. It places an extra burden of stress on Absolutely. the individual. Yeah. My own interest in mental health led me to ask Salam what mental health implications there might be to this type of identity management, particularly at work, which for many people takes up much of their time. My second chapter focuses on like a work ethic. And I've come to understand that our work identities, I mean, work is such a central part of U.S. identity in general. And globally, work is a central part of the human existence, right? Our work identity makes up a large chunk of who we are. Um, And in Islam specifically, work is a central component. Like it is what keeps you from having an idle mind. And having an idle mind is what leads to like, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this very generally. I mean, there's, it's very much more detailed, but um, staying that kind of busy and being productive and um, helps you deal with mental health. It gives you purpose. Work is very much related to purpose in Islam. So we have to work. Um, it is a core part of our religious identity. I am a Muslim. Um, it is required work is a form of worship in Islam. And there's a reason for that, right? It pre- again, it prevents the idle mind. It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. And in Islam, we don't, it's, it's very different from the U.S. in the fact that there is no Brit, there is no difference between the private and the public realm. They're pretty much supposed to be bridged together in Islam. That is why Muslims pray at work. Prayer, religious expression, and those forms it's not just about bringing your religion into work and forcing on others. No, it's religious expression is about um, reminding us as Muslims constantly to monitor our behaviors. And these are in line with work standards, work ethics, right? Don't steal, treat. You can't pray if I just mistreated a patient or if I just stole from somebody in the securities industry, right? That is a, a like a standard that you have to meet prior to completing prayers, right? So it ensures that you're you're living a very fulfilling and deep and deeply connected life to not just God, but to those around you. Um, and that it, and it is a form of, um, it alleviates any mental distress that happens at work, right? It's supposed to allow you to process because when we're at work, we deal with the stresses. Um, so I think that adds an element 
when Muslims are going into work and these kinds of ideas are rejected just because of these preconceived notions of what it means to be Muslim, it's like we're being denied that. It's like we, we have to hide our prayers now. And that's another thing I explore in my study, um, re- how religious expression plays out. We suddenly have to hide these things. So rituals are changing when we come here. Well, when rituals, when we're prevented as Muslims from doing our rituals, we're, we're denying ourselves the chance to mentally heal ourselves, right? The ch- prayer is meditation. It's nothing but meditation, right? Their incantations are very similar to what other religious groups do. We're denying Muslims the capability of dealing with these um, stressors that happen at work on top of pulling them away from the very thing that could help them. On top of the fact that we're also seeing them as unqualified, uneducated, you know, and they're working extra hard. And that's another thing chapter two covers in the work ethic. Like it's not just a work ethic based on Islam. It's a work ethic that is reacting to you're not good enough no matter what you do. So they have to do extra work. You have to be on the ball. Do not mess up. Do not be late after lunch, right? This is like highly stressful, um, unnecessary stress. It definitely is connected, I think, to deeply connected to mental health. Um, I don't really go into the discussions of mental health, but I do talk about um, emotion management and the strategies they do to cope and you know, what, what issues they face, not to mention being pushed out of the workforce. Well, speaking of, I wanted to bring something to your attention. Recently, a teacher was removed in Canada for wearing a hijab to work. They were removed from their position because a bill prohibits some public sector workers from wearing religious symbols at work. Right. And I, I mean, that happened in France too, right? Student, yeah. you, know, you can't wear this. This is a global reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that just really, again, speaks to the monitoring of women's bodies. Like you're not, you're not helping a woman by, you know, if you believe that a woman is being oppressed um, through the hijab, you're not changing it by telling them that they're not allowed to wear it. You're still preventing a woman from making a choice. Um, and that is just, Well, and certainly there are mental health implications to losing your job and being unable or judged for your religious rituals. uh, And and I mean, and most certainly are integral to their identity. Right. And just the fact that a woman is like facing the reality, like facing the preconception that somebody is telling them to take the hijab off because they believe them to be violent. Most people are most Muslims, like every other American is going to work just to, you know, living their life like the rest of U.S. Americans. And to have to think that somebody thinks that I support terrorism or that I'm in some way inherently violent or lack compassion is just. Well, and it's really uh, violating an individual's personal connection to God. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, their decision. It's a relationship with the veil. And now there's an added layer of tension. Yeah, I mean, and the reality is, is studies show that those that are more religiously inclined live healthier lives. And it's interesting because, and not to say that those that don't, you know, and that's an unfair thing to say because it doesn't, it assumes, I mean, like atheists are one of the most distrusted groups, right? So they actually have access to less resources, but to take that away, right, that mental health component, 
right? Religion is there to serve our mental health. Um, and you're ripping that apart for somebody. And it's not like Muslims are walking into work trying to express openly. I mean, there are some that do, but it's those that openly or overtly try to express they're not going in trying to start a it's mission. political no i mean some do there was a man <laughs> okay. one man i interviewed specifically wore a kufi those little little hats that muslim men wear when they go to and he did it in solidarity with his wife for his wife and his sisters who work in professional environments and they get attacked a lot because they're headscarves but he was very quick in saying that i i work in a in an environment, he's, he was an anesthesiologist. So he, and he had a, his education, he had like a high pedigree in terms of like his background. So nobody was going to mess with him, you know? So he was able to do that and he understands that. Um, so because of that, he, he took advantage of his position. Other men spoke of men to, to actually tended to do that more often than women were more often likely to like overtly, like one told me that I pray on purpose and I pray and where people can see me because in, in this case, he was a director of engineering in a management position, upper management, and he, his job was under threat in doing so. That's something to think about when I'm writing my dissertation. I want people to think about is, you know, what are Muslims to do? Like, should Muslims take a more proactive approach and showcase themselves or overtly identify themselves to normalize that they're there? Um, or should they continue just to practice the way they've been practicing? I then asked Salam how she might recommend people support Muslims that they may work with. You know, the reality is, given the relative s- small populations, like the small pockets of Muslim populations across the U.S., most U.S. Americans that are non-Muslim, non-Arab, aren't aware that they work with a Muslim. If I were to say one thing, they're so open to speaking about who they are and what they are if they were approached in a civil way. And I think that is the biggest problem. There's this tendency to assume that, that where questions are really focused on political, right? That just because somebody is Muslim or Arab, they're going to know about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict or that they have an opinion about Osama bin Laden or they know Osama bin Laden. It's, that's how inappropriate these questions are. Yeah, it's a form of dehumanization rather than approaching this person and trying to figure out I mean, the reality is these interviews are suggesting that most people don't even know where Lebanon is. They, Lebanon didn't even register as an Arab country. Um, so there's so much about the Arab and the Muslim world that people aren't aware of, you know, m- much less that the Muslim world is far larger than the Arab world um, globally. So these kind of questions, they, we just, ha- I think people need to take a step back and not take these assumptions as like the these political ideas that they're learning in the media or assumptions about women and the oppressor oppressed framing as the way to question somebody like you need to be more open to just asking like where are you from you know how did that how did you come here or were you born here um I don't know. It's that's a really tough question. How do you end inequality? <laughs> We're gonna solve it today. <laughs> but um, I definitely think that there's a lot of work to be done in workplaces. Like diversity initiatives are called into question a lot within the research too. Like they don't, they're not efficient in many ways. Um, they've been well, called. I think it's the socialization, right? 
These people yeah. have grown up believing certain ways of right. thinking. And-, and we think about, when we think about inequality in the workplace, we tend to think about overt forms of discrimination, like hiring discrimination or mm-hmm. being denied, you know. Broad. Like, I'd say these are broad forms. Yeah. yeah we don't really, we don't really. Apply. Yeah. Yeah. We need to like really address subtle forms of discrimination and that it ha- that involves having the really hard discussions at work. We tend to think that work is very um, a neutral place where we don't talk politics, but that's not the reality. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the case of the 84 people I interviewed, politics are discussed, but only certain forms of politics. Like you can't go in there and talk about, you know, the Lebanese civil war. You know, you can't talk about uh, the Syrian conflict. You know, you can talk about Trump when the when the when the elections were happening. You can show support, right? And like the automotive, this is a very conservative industry. You know, the automotive industries that I <laughs> explored, they sent their employees to like uh, presidential speeches and stuff like that when they were coming and talking to the UAW. So their politics is very much embedded trump. but that's trump right they were sending it was during the election rallies yeah. yeah they were they were i i won't yeah there were certain and this is not just auto manufacturers this is like engineering firms like all of them this is just a very conservative this is a coordinated effort clearly yeah and these individuals are talking about like people who had like their desks decorated with who, what candidate they were supporting mm. but they could not address their own political opinions like it just was not allowed um unless so it fell under what the we need to was. make sense of that right? right we need to make right. sense of what is discussed and what isn't right and just very hard conversations that i think workplace structures still have yet to fully address and policies and different procedures and initiatives feminist sociological research has the most impact when shared Salam shared her plans to ensure that her research is impactful and reaches beyond the academy. She recommended several ways and resources for people to further educate themselves on the experiences of Muslims and Arabs in the U.S. Muslims in general make up a very small population, so do Arabs, right? And if they do exist in the U.S., they're in very small pockets. They're spatially dispersed. So if you're not in an immigrant community and you don't have that type of exposure, you're you're pretty much getting most of your information from mainstream media, and that's very problematic. So my advice, honestly, would be to like seek out organizations that are geared towards like think tanks um, or like CARE is one or such organization or the Arab American Discrimination Committee. There's just there's just many organizations that really address. Muslim experiences that collect data on like hate crimes and are reporting this type of data. They're not as large as like the NAACP or the ACLU, but at least the, the ACLU might be reporting on these too, but you want to like reach out to, you want to like look into these organizations and not just focus on mainstream media for your info, right? Honestly, visit a local mosque, be open to that. Or if there's any group, find out if find out what the population of Muslims and Arabs look like in your own community. I mean, Arabs are, live, live throughout the U.S. They're not just. I mean, there's there's definitely larger populations in certain areas, but Michigan isn't even one of the largest. California is, 
and they've been there longer. So chances are their names have changed. You just don't recognize them as Arab or Muslim anymore, but they're there. Um, so there's probably organizations around those areas that you can go to um, and seek out information to learn more. Seems to me there's an erasure occurring of, of the Muslim identity, of religious identity, unless it falls into a specific framework that we understand. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because prior to 9-11 research, when I was looking into the research, Muslims had been really identified as an invisible group. So it's kind of like opposite. They were more invisible prior mm. to 9-11. So after 9-11, you're, you were suddenly dealing in immigration reform. You were suddenly dealing with this new form of heightened visibility. They suddenly went from being invisible subjects to visible subjects. But that, that visibility is very specific. Like, this, it's a type of visibility, it's, yeah, right? It's and it's very specific to a certain. We don't want to take away the visibility. We want to shift the idea of it. Like the there's, yeah, it, there's it's a difference. We want to have these conversations. Yeah, there's definitely the, I think a difference between being visible and being perceived, like being normalized, I guess, or being perceived as just another group, another demographic here, and with just differences that are respected. Not to mention that visibility is based on inaccurate, you know, steer, steer, uh, homogenous, like they're homogenized and mm-hmm. using inaccurate stereotypes and inaccurate depictions. Do you intend on sharing this stuff with your community at all? Or do you just have it, will allow it to agree organically? Yeah. Um, become infused. Yeah, I mean, right now, I haven't really been focusing on that. I mean, I, I definitely think it's important. I don't know if, I, I think it's more important that it be shared within like workplace structures, right? I think my the Arab and Muslim community around me is fully aware of these issues. Many of my participants were very interested reading my findings after the study is completed. Like I had such an interest and it's just a really a reflection of how it marginalized this group is in research. Um, even in my teaching, I think teaching in the classes I've taught in this community in various um, community colleges and at Wayne State, the number of Arab and Muslim students that have approached me and taken an interest in how I got into this line of work, right? I, I mean, I definitely think that that alone is making a significant change. Um, as far as taking the information out to the community, that's still up for uh, how, I mean, I would have an interest in eventually writing op-eds, but finding the right avenue and disseminating the information in different in different ways is definitely something I think about a lot. But right now I'm so deeply embedded in the dissertation and sure, sure. You know. Yeah, we don't, yeah, down the line. Yeah. It's just like how do we create that open conversation, bridging right. academic work with the general public. But yeah, you know, it can start though in the classroom with your students. Oh, for sure. And there's definitely Absolutely. an impact that's felt till this day when I teach Arab and Muslim women specifically mm-hmm. are, approach me and just the entrance into academia or my entrance into academia is so fascinating for them in the field of sociology. It's not Arabs and Muslims tend to be steered into certain careers like I was just telling you guys mm-hmm. so um taking the information into the classroom is such a, a profound experience in itself 
Agreed. I think it's an underrepresented form of power. Oh, for sure. For (laughs) sure. So I feel like even if I don't manage to bring it out into the, my local community, I am definitely still creating change by bringing the information and existing as a Muslim and Arab scholar in the classroom. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That was really, um, really interesting. And I'm probably going to have a ton of questions later, but (laughs) yeah, no, reach out. This was great. This was fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed myself. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a great project you guys are doing. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Feminist Intersections. Remember to subscribe to be notified when we release new episodes and follow us on Twitter at SochWomen. Women.